ahead and grab your Bibles if you got them. Grab your tablet, your app, your phone, whatever it is you use. Uh, and find Philippians chapter 4. <clears throat> We're in the middle of our series on overcoming worry and anxiety. We started in Psalm 131, giving this picture that David gave to us of a calmed and quieted, weaned child uh, is my soul within me, is what David said. And David gave us this picture uh, of worry. We, we essentially drew the lines on the field uh, in that sermon. We talked about where worry happens, where, where our struggles typically reside when it comes to worry and anxiety. And we said that our thoughts uh, our feelings, our emotions, our hearts, the deepest levels of who we are is where worry has a tendency to show up, uh, that we respond to our circumstances in inappropriate ways. And then last week, uh, we looked at uh, the preparation, the spring training of the Christian life, as it were, where you and I <clears throat> are both called uh, to prepare for the times when worry is going to show up, that you and I have seasons uh, where maybe we're not worrying so much about things. Uh, life is going pretty good, that we understand our circumstances, that our plans are coming to fruition, that there's relative safety and peace in the relationships we have, that my vocational dreams and ambitions are being fulfilled, and I'm not worrying too much. And in those seasons, we said that we're called to rejoice, to praise God, to be continually growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Well, this week... Uh, Use whatever sports illustration you want. The game is on. That you no doubt came into the back doors of a church with a variety of things in this week, this month, this season that you're worrying about. That you feel like you're in the game. And that's what this text is going to be about. It's the very next step as Paul begins to counsel worry and fretful, anxious hearts. Uh, so I'll tell you how this text is going to lay out. We're going to look at just two little bitty verses, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and verse 7. Uh, the verse 6 starts in the middle of a sentence, which is dumb. Uh, nobody asked me. I don't know why uh, somebody decided to put verse 6 right in the middle. Uh, but if you see the, the beginning of the sentence, what we ended with last week, we saw this beautiful picture last week of the Lord being near, that the presence of God uh, was the great comfort to the hearts of people who are anxious and worried, that God draws near to us in the person and work of Jesus, that when Jesus comes down and, and takes a human body, that he lives and experiences life and the temptations that we do. That he knows what it means to go through life feeling the temptation and the pull of worry and anxiety. So before we even get started, and I lay out the, the outline of what we're going to look at today, we're going to remind ourselves of what we ended with last week, that the Lord is, in fact, near. That Jesus is called Emmanuel. He's called God with us. That he comes down to be with his people, to draw near to us, to know what it's like to walk this in this world as a human. So as we begin the counsel that Paul is about to give, we are confident and reminded by the fact that Paul tells us of God's presence. So you're going to have the presence of God out of which we're going to hear Paul's instructions to us today. And Paul's instructions are going to be three very simple things. He's going to give you a prohibition, what you're not to do. He's going to give you a prescription, what you ought to do. 
And then he's going to give you a promise so that you and I aren't left with merely replacing one activity for another. What Paul is going to say is that he, God is going to give you something that there's going to be an outcome of this kind of activity that he gives to us. So a prohibition, a prescription, and a promise. You with me? All right, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. Let's uh, give thanks, and we'll pray, and we'll jump in here together. Uh, Why don't you pray with me? Father in heaven, this morning... We give thanks for your word. We give thanks for those who have served us already through worship and song that has drawn our hearts and minds to the truth of who you are, that has reminded us of your goodness, that has reminded us of our dependence. Father in heaven, as we come here this morning with distracted and despairing and fretful and anxious hearts, I pray that for these few minutes that you would answer the prayers here of Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, that you would give us a peace in this place, that for just a moment we would be reminded of your sovereign, wise, kind, gracious goodness toward us. That as we sit and we talk here and we look into your word, that you would reorient maybe some practices in our hearts and minds that are unhealthy, that you would direct us, you would guide us, you would shape us and change us by your word. Father, that as we pray here and we look at your word, that the person and work of Jesus would be lifted up, that we would find great hope, that you would deepen us for those who are in fretful seasons, that you would give peace, that you would give comfort through your word, through your spirit, and through uh, understanding with eyes of faith who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So God in heaven, we come in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, hopeful and dependent as a people upon your word to speak. We pray that you would do that for us and through the person of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. All right, Philippians chapter four, y'all there? Good, you found it? Philippians chapter four, take a look here at verse six. We'll, We'll read the whole sentence together. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. Now, we began last week with a command. Remember the command? What was the command last week? If you remember, you were with us, or you can go back and watch us online. It was rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Well, Paul continues his counsel to the anxious heart by uh, giving you a word that is uh, a word that happens about 20 times in the Scriptures. Uh, Very common in two particular places, in Matthew and in Luke, uh, more than half of the occurrences of this word are on the lips of Jesus. The other ones are mostly on the lips of Paul, and he writes. Uh, But Jesus, I'm sorry, Paul begins with a prohibition. Don't be anxious about anything. Now, that's pretty intense, isn't it? I mean, doesn't that feel a little, a little hard to live out? I mean, it may be big things. Like we looked at Psalm 131 that we went back in that psalm and we said there were three things. My heart's not lifted up, my eyes aren't too high, and I don't concern myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. 
and we realize that there we all have a tendency to have our heart lifted up, to look down on others, and to make our, uh, to make our business things that should not be our business. And now here's Paul giving you a command, a directive on how you are meant to lead your heart. That you and I are commanded not to be anxious about anything. Now, I want to talk about this word anxious and how the Bible uses it. Because this word can be co-opted in our culture to mean a lot of different things. So that when we come to the scriptures, we need to define this word anxious the way the scriptures define this word anxious. So that we can understand what God is talking about. In fact, what Jesus and what Paul are talking about with this word. So this word is used, like I said, of Jesus when he talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount. So I want you to keep your finger in Philippians chapter 4 and turn over to Matthew chapter 6. It's the most intense use of this word in the string of verses. And Jesus comes right after this word anxious in Matthew chapter 6. He's going to use it six different times in these verses. Matthew 6 Verse 25, let's see what uh, Jesus says here. It comes right on the heels of laying up treasure in heaven. You see that in your Bible? That, it, that in context, the, the counsel that Jesus gives is in the context of laying up treasures in heaven, of having our focus of where our hearts are, where our hearts are committed and connected to this world. And Jesus is helping to disengage our hearts from laying up treasures on earth, right? And instead, laying up treasures in heaven. Then he starts his comments on this word anxious in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Take a look there, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Now, I want to give you about four or five different things that worry does uh, to us that it lies to us. Remember we said last week how uh, we used that illustration of the Crayola box that only, of all those colors and it only picks two or three different colors and it paints a picture, right, in all of one kind of shade of a color. Well, uh, what Jesus is gonna help us do here is see how often worry and anxiety lie to us. That worry and anxiety has been described as a false prophet that continuously preaches a message to you about a variety of things, about God, about circumstances, about you, about the future, all of those sorts of things. And you're going to see them all compacted here as Jesus gives illustrations and asks you questions. It's really helpful. Would you agree when Jesus starts asking you questions that he doesn't really need the answers? You with me? That Jesus is asking questions so that you understand the answers. Because you and I have a tendency not to ask the right questions. So when Jesus starts asking questions, it's to help us come to a greater understanding of what is happening in our hearts and minds. Well, Jesus begins, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? The first way worry has a tendency to to lie to us is that it takes our lives and shrinks them. Right? The answer that Jesus gives to these issues is saying that you have a tendency, and I have a tendency. Isn't this the case that when you're worrying about something, it's the only thing that you can think about? That it has a tendency to dominate the way your perspective and the way that you are seeing things because you're only seeing things through this thing that is really capturing your attention? 
And worry has a way of taking your world and shrinking it down to that one little thing, right? That one little mental conversation that you're having in the car on the way to the grocery store about that person, that thing, that event, that workplace conflict, that whatever it is, and it shrinks it down. And Jesus says, isn't life more than those things? What's the answer? Yeah, yes. So worry has a tendency to, to shrink our life. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? You know, worry has a tendency to, um, to affect how we see ourselves. And Jesus inserts this question that is so fascinating to me, is that he inserts a question about God's love for you. Isn't that interesting? That God makes sure that you know your worth before your heavenly father. That a lot of times what happens in worry is that we reduce our life to this size and then we presume that nobody else is out there, right? Nobody else is worrying about this thing that I'm worried about. Nobody else cares as much about this thing that I care about it. And what I have a tendency to do in my mind and my heart is leave God completely out of the equation and presume that life is up to me. And God says, Jesus says, look at the birds. God feeds the birds. Aren't you more precious than the birds? Isn't that kind of Jesus to say? To remind you and I of our worth to our Heavenly Father. That he loves you. That you're precious to him. He cares about you. Verse 27, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? What a great question. Isn't that an annoying question? I mean, that's like, Jesus. pay attention. You can't make your life last longer by worrying. In fact, you only want to reduce your life, keep worrying. See, worry has a tendency to lie to us about us. It tells us that we uh, are stronger than we think we are. We're, is that right? Yeah, worry lies to us in that way. That it tells us we are stronger than we actually are. And Jesus says, your worry doesn't make you any more effective, doesn't make you any stronger, doesn't make you any more competent. Verse 28, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? You see how Jesus is drawing our hearts and minds back to the goodness and the care of God? That God is recklessly gracious with how he clothes the flowers with beauty. Which are here for a moment and then they're gone. Isn't that interesting? It's like God's a, a wasteful spender in the beauty that he puts into his creation that is here just for a moment and, hits, and then it gets hit by the mower and is thrown into the trash. Now, therefore, based on those things, don't be anxious saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But... 
Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Verse 34, therefore don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Where does worry draw your mind? It lies to you about tomorrow, doesn't it? That when you and I worry, we're worried about what will happen. What could come to pass? What if this thing occurs? And Jesus says, make sure your eyes are not over there. Remember, how, that's how we started the year, right? The right way to plan. What are you? You're a mist that appears for a little while. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will go and do this or that. We're fundamentally dependent people and dependent on the Lord today. So, <clears throat> primarily, when Jesus uses this word and the scriptures use this word, the vast majority of places, the word anxious is used. It's used about a, an inordinate preoccupation on worldly and temporal and fleeting things. It's that your mind and my mind is focused on things that are short-lived, things of this world, that we have too much preoccupation in the things that we think about when it comes to all of what Jesus has just said, what we eat, what we drink, how we're clothed, what our future is, what's going to happen. We're not sure. We've got to keep focused. We've got to keep worrying. We've got to make sure. But there's two places, which is interesting. Uh, <clears throat> in a minute, I'll talk about, I'll, talk, I'll expand this idea. But this verse doesn't uh, end with a period in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. You can turn back there now. Um, because the, the solution for the worrying and the fretful heart is not just stop it. You can't stop worrying by stopping worrying. You understand that? That me telling you to quit it doesn't help you. Me telling me to quit worrying doesn't help. It just it hits, I go from, you know, third gear into fourth gear. You know, now I'm worried about sinning, and now I'm, gosh, she told me not to worry, and now I'm worrying more. I should probably worry about not worrying. Right? Don't you do that? You start worrying about the things, but I know I shouldn't ought to be worrying. Jesus says not to worry, and now I'm sinning by worrying. Gosh, now I'm a sinner too. Not only am I worrying about the circumstances and situations I'm in, but now I'm worried about my spiritual state and whether or not I'm sinning, and I've got to apologize and forgive for forgiveness for the worrying that I ought not to be worrying about. So, there are two places, this is so interesting to me, there's two places where this word is used in a positive sense. Now remember, Jesus just finished his words in Matthew 6 with counsel to us, right? Tomorrow is anxious for itself, but seek first the what? The kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Well, that's an interesting piece of counsel that Jesus gives. The two other places where this word is used in a positive sense, Paul uses it in... Um, 2 Corinthians, he says, apart from the other things, I have daily on me the pressures and anxiety of the churches. This word. The other place he uses it is actually in this very book. Turn back, you're in Philippians 4, turn back to Philippians chapter 2. Take a look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. 
I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be, here it is, genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. What is Timothy focused on? If you can't defeat worry by stopping worrying, because our life is not wired like that, you can't just, remember dial tones? Does anybody remember the dial tone? Thank you, Donna. Nobody else in this room but you and me, Donna. It's you and me. We remember the dial tone. Your mental, talk to somebody older than you. When you used to have landlines, you used to pick up the phone and there was a dial tone. I don't know why they did that. That was a part of, I guess, the way they made phones. But your mental conversation isn't meant to merely be a dial tone. You can't do it. That's not how God has created us. You are always going to have the mental conversation in your mind when you let your mind wander be about something. And without the prescription that Paul is about to give, you are going to tend to worry. You're going to tend to think about things you can't control, think about the future you can't control, have a greater uh, perspective and ambition on your own strength, have a, uh, a tendency to view God with skepticism. And what Paul tells us about Timothy here is that Timothy is anxious. He's concerned about the right things. What are the right things? The good of the church at Philippi. And then he follows it up with the interests of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus just say? Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you as well. Paul tells us that Timothy is focused on the right things. If you talk to, uh, there's a couple in our church who has a particular um, drive right now to pray for and focus on evangelism. That they are seeing people as knowing Jesus or not knowing Jesus and taking opportunities to share the love of Christ with the people in their family, with hairdressers, with uh, a variety of neighbors, of people they're praying with, and what they are, if I were to characterize them, I would characterize them as anxious and concerned for the right things. They're anxious and concerned for the things of the Lord. That the spiritual well-being of the people around them matters to them. And I get the emails about how they're sharing their faith and how people are coming to faith. They are consumed in their thinking with what God wants to do in and through them. Now, that's a pretty good antidote to worry, would you agree? That that's reorienting my mind and my heart on the things and the interests of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> So, what are you preoccupied with? What's capturing your mind and heart right now? Remember I told you to list your worries, did you do that? And we put hope next to them? But now what Paul is, is about to do for us 
is to direct us. If I'm not supposed to worry and I can't just stop worrying, what do I need to replace it with? And that's what he's going to give here in the remainder of the verse. Do not be anxious about anything, but here's your contrast. In everything, you see those? Anxious about anything, but in everything. Everything? In every situation, there is an opportunity. There's in every single relationship, in every single season of life, in every single point of difficulty, in every single workplace difficulty, that there's something that you and I can be doing to replace our worry with something that uh, God gives us. God knows our hearts. He understands how we're wired. Would you agree with that? That as God makes us, he, he gives us now the spiritual practices that ought to characterize the people who know him and love him and serve him. So if I'm not supposed to be anxious for anything, but in everything, by what? Say prayer. Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now here's, this is the stunning thing about this verse. Now, I don't know how much you worry. Maybe you're not a worrier. Maybe there isn't a mental preoccupation with this world and things of this world and where your career is headed and how your relationships are going and what's happening with your kids and whether or not you're going to make, you know, uh, the money you thought this year or not. Maybe you kind of float through life like like it's no big deal. But maybe you worry. And what Paul just told us is the worry should be matched with prayer. That as much as you worry, that's as much as you should be praying. Now, how do we typically approach prayer? Typically, we approach prayer with, I worry about a whole lot of stuff over here, and I pray when I have to. Right? And Paul makes the equation equal. So that you know as much as you have the temptation, as much as tomorrow morning something is going to come into your life, and this week something is going to happen where you're going to be tempted to worry, it's at that very moment where you are called to replace worry with prayer. He uses two words for prayer. Prayer and supplication is what he used. You see those? Prayer primarily means praying to a deity. It essentially means talking to God But he uses a second word, supplication. Supplication is a word that is particular to people who have needs. So that you aren't just talking to God, but you're also bringing your needs to him. Is there a situation in your life that you're worrying about it? where you see the situation and you think it ought to be different and you need the resources, the planning, the insight, the scripture the spiritual resources for that situation to change. Guess what? You're not going to get them by worrying. You're going to get them by praying. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Why thanksgiving? You know, the the command to prayer is common throughout the New Testament epistles, right? Jesus talks about when you pray. He talks about how to pray. He gives examples of a persistent widow in the book of Luke who wears out an unrighteous judge with how often she is coming to pray. 
Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing. Colossians 1, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. 1 Thessalonians 1, we give thanks always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Why Thanksgiving? You know, I think, I think thanksgiving is an important element of prayer the same way that hope was an important part of Psalm 131. That when you and I pray, uh, Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 says, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. That you and I need to be practiced in identifying where and how God is working. Let me tell you, let me just be a little bit transparent or a lot bit transparent. Uh, when I deal with prayer, one of the things I've recognized about myself is I have a tendency to pray prayers that are broad. That I'll pray for broad, sweeping ideas that leave just enough room to where I don't have to be vulnerable with God. That leave just enough room to say, I prayed and I asked for the right thing, but I can't really identify where and how God answered that prayer. Now, maybe that's just me, but that's my own. As God has been working on me in a text like this, the place where this text for Steve got radioactive is in the next part. In everything, by prayer and supplication. Okay, I can pray about that stuff. With thanksgiving, okay, I've got to identify where God is at work and give thanks for where and how he's working in a situation. Let your requests be made known to God. Now, why in the world is that there? It's not like God doesn't know, right? In the same way Jesus asks questions, he's not looking for information. But for some reason, Paul has tied prayer to uh, specific things. Why in Jesus' examples does he use things that are so particular, that are so little, what you eat, drink, and wear? Do you know why I think Jesus does that? I think Jesus does that so that when you eat and drink and put on a shirt, you are reminded that God is involved in those things. That God doesn't just care. I have a tendency to, here's another confession. I have a tendency to categorize things in my brain. Maybe you do this too. Into things I ought to pray for and things that I can handle on my own just fine. I don't pray about lost keys. That's dumb. I pray about spiritual things. The glory of God. The maturity of his church for God to send labors, all those big spiritual things. But I don't pray about little things. That's dumb. That's personal responsibility. But Jesus says, why do you worry about the little things? And what I think Paul is saying here is that when we make our requests known to God, we discover something about ourselves in prayer. If worry has a tendency to, to lie to us about who we are, making our requests known to God exposes us. Isn't prayer humiliating? Isn't prayer embarrassing the number of things that you can't control, that you're not in charge of, 
that you are, don't you hate the fact that uh, all of a sudden there are little things in your life that get you far more anxious and worried than they ought to? Isn't that frustrating? Isn't that embarrassing when you go to pray about to God and you go, God, this person thinks this about me and it wrecked me and it's so embarrassing for me to even pray that. Why am I praying about this thing right now? I shouldn't even worry about this, but I am worried about it and I, God, I feel so vulnerable and so exposed. And what I have a tendency to do is ignore those things. And what Paul is saying is that our prayers are inviting us into those intimate, particular, needy kinds of things when we pray. Make your requests known to God. Why? Because you need to know. See, prayer is this vulnerable and exposed and humiliating, and God, I'm not as righteous as I thought I was because this conversation and this situation are revealing a need in me that I cannot meet are revealing things that I, in me that I don't believe about you, God, that I don't see you as good and sovereign and loving and caring in this situation. And God, I see myself as the end of uh, the resources in this particular situation. And God, you're bringing me to the end of myself. Oh, God, help in this little bitty way. See, prayer is meant to be not this, this life, this, you know, this, I call them flare prayers where you got a flare gun, you go, one, because it's real bad and I need help. But prayer is meant to be this everything. This pray- Why does the scriptures talk about pray without ceasing? Because everything is meant to be this dialogue with God, this, this revelation before God about who we are and how good he is and how patient and kind and generous and, and tender he is as he leads us through these seasons and situations about life. That's why prayer is so essential to spiritual maturity. Because as you go through spiritual maturity, you are not getting more independent your entire life in this world declares to you that the older you get, the more independent and sufficient you ought to be. That's reverse for the Christian. That's when Jesus puts little kids in front of him and said, you gotta be like a child to enter the kingdom of God. You know what? I have uh, a three-year-old and I'm about to be two-year-old in a couple weeks here, and they are so fast to say they're tired. They're so fast to ask for help. They're so fast. Hold me, 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 hold me. Hold me, hold me, hold me. They're so quick to do that. Are you quick to do that? In everything, do you pray? As much as you worry, do you pray? My concern for you and my concern for me is that I have practiced the worry muscle a lot more than the prayer muscle. That concerns me. That I'm practicing worry so much that when it comes time to pray, I can't pray as hard as I worry. Paul says, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. Make your requests be made known to God. Okay, so you got your prohibition. You with me? Don't be anxious. You got your prescription. Pray always without ceasing in everything. 
And that'd be pretty good. That's a pretty good replacement. Would you agree that you need to stop doing this, stop eating that, those chips, and do a couple more squats, and everything will be fine? But it's way better than that. It's way better than that. Because God just doesn't give us the tool for prayer and tell us, quit worrying, start praying, and see me next week. What Paul is about to say is the great promise for the Christian. You know, we said last week, let your reasonableness be known to all. The Lord is at hand, right? What Paul is about to say here is the most unreasonable promise that God gives. Look at verse 7. And the peace of God. Uh, that's a, that word, that phrase, the peace of God, is only used in your Bible right here. And commentators think it, it carries two main ideas. Subjective peace, that we experience the peace of God as we pray, but also objective peace, that in heaven, in the courts of heaven around the throne of God, nobody is biting their fingernails nervous. Nobody is fretful running around, right? Nobody in the presence of God is going, God, I don't know what he's going to do. Maybe he's, I'm not sure he's in control. God exists in perfect peace. God's never anxious. God's never worried. God's never fretting. God's never going, what am I going to do now? I don't know how this is going to work out. That's my God voice, apparently. That's how God sounds to me. <clears throat> the peace of God. That God exists in perfect, eternal, loving, calm, and serenity. And that peace can be yours. The peace of God. Now, it's characterized by two different things. The first one is that it surpasses all understanding. It's unreasonable. It doesn't make sense. Paul's normative Christianity is thankful, joyful, peaceful, and prayerful. That's normative for Paul. This is the normal life for the Christian. That as you encounter people who don't know Jesus, they should look at your life and go, this doesn't make sense. How can you be in this situation and at the same time peaceful, calm, resolute, confident? And the answer is only through prayer. Now, it's not that prayer does something magical, that prayer is, is somehow peaceful, as I'll show you in a second, but it's the, it's the way we access the peace of God. That there's a beyond all human understanding, beyond all human comprehension, if you add up the circumstances that make you worry over here and it comes out to zero, you're going, how does that happen? How can you respond this way to that situation? Only through prayer. This is the promise for the praying Christian. So it surpasses all human understanding. I wish I could explain that more, but you don't understand it. And I don't understand it. 
Why does it work that way? I don't know. God gives that to the people who pray. Well, how does he give it? I don't know. That's what God does. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. That word is used elsewhere, and it's used by 1 Peter, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, where he said, we are being guarded by faith for salvation to be revealed in the last time. The only other places it's used, it's used of a military garrison in a city. There was a Roman military garrison in the city of Philippi. So if the people of Philippi would walk in and around their city, they would take a look at this military garrison that was the protector of the city. They were the protector of Rome's interests. And Paul, Paul, being in prison when he writes Philippians, would be familiar with this term as well. And it's as if Paul is there in prison remarking that no matter what the situations are on the outside, that the peace of God will stand guard over the Christian, over the Christian's heart. And the way that that is accessed is through prayer. See, the peace of God is not Zen. You know what Zen is? Zen comes from Buddhism. Buddhism is reformed Hinduism. Hinduism says there's evil in the world, but it's really an illusion. It's Maya. That not, it's not as bad as you think it is. You just got to see it from a different perspective. Buddha comes along and he goes, no, no, no. There is real evil in the world, and it's a result of people's desires. So the whole goal in Buddhism is to remove desire. That's why we do the om and the praying and the hoping and the nirvana and all of that, and detachment is the idea in Buddhism. That's not Christian. The Christian is meant to reckon truly with evil, with hardship, with difficulty, with season. Peace does not guarantee that you won't be sad. Peace does not guarantee that life will be easy. Amen, Christians? Peace does not guarantee that you will get what you ask for. Peace guarantees that you have access to your heavenly Father who is sufficient in any and all circumstances, who is powerful than more than any foe out there, who is completely sovereign and is completely working his good purposes out in your life and the people lives that you are in, in relationship with. Do you believe that? That's what prayer does. Prayer is when you and God meet face to face. And you go, God, I don't understand. God, this is hard. I don't understand this circumstances, this situation, this relationship, this failure. And through prayer, God is working on you to give you of his peace, to let you know that he is in control, he is sovereign, he loves you. You are precious to him. And that peace, through, as prayer, as you pray, uh, it mobilizes the army. That the peace of God stands guard and stands between you and that difficulty and that circumstance. Because you and I are prone to be vulnerable, and it's only in prayer where the power of God is poured out in our hearts. Where he comes to fight for me. You with me? And he comes to fight for you. Look at how he closes. That the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There's one Prince of Peace. 
one. You can't have peace from God unless you have peace with God. That's why the scriptures, the, the commands to pray in the scriptures are amazing. Jesus says stuff like, ask whatever you will in my name and it will be done for you. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus would say that? He has the audacity to say, come through me and you receive. And this is the hard part. A lot of times we pray in our own name. We go, God, I've been obedient. You better answer. God, I've done the right thing. You better show up. And Paul says the guardianship of peace, the peace that guards our hearts and minds, that surpasses all understanding, is found in one man. Amen, church? That that is the truth of the praying uh, Christian that we've got hope and a defender and the one who gives us free access to pray to the God of heaven and earth. So that when we come by the name of God, by, I'm sorry, when we come by the name of Jesus, we know we have the request of which we've asked of him. Now, God doesn't always say yes to all our prayers. You know that. But in the same way he begins, he ends. That the Lord is near. And that we come as a praying and dependent and hopeful people in the one name that is given under heaven by which we may be saved. Jesus, in the middle of, uh, we'll close here, if I have the band to come up. Jesus, in the middle of the, uh, the upper room discourse, this is in John. Uh, he's working on the disciples who just don't understand who he is or what he's doing or why he's there. And, you know, the disciples are just like us. We go, what is God doing in this situation? And why is he going? Why is he doing this? And where is Jesus when I need him? And all of that. And they don't understand. And Jesus says this as he gets ready to go be crucified. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name. I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world to go to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with, is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. I'm not saying all your problems are going to go away if you pray to Jesus. You hear me, right? I'm not saying life's going to get easier Monday morning. Life might get harder. But it's in Jesus alone that there's peace. You're not going to find peace by worrying. You're not going to find peace by being in control. You're not going to find peace by succeeding or having all your plans and ambitions met. The one spot where you can find true and lasting eternal peace.
is with Jesus. If you came in today and you've never heard that before, if you've been trying in your own strength, in your own worry, and in your own ability to make life make sense, can I tell you the greatest news in the world that we as a church believe is that in Jesus you can find peace? that he can settle the worryful and anxious and fretful heart. So I'm going to close with this prayer. This is a prayer from uh, Romans chapter 15. I'm going to read it because I can preach it, but we got to practice it, don't we? I can preach about it, but we got to go out and pray. we got to do the work. So I'm going to pray this. This is from Romans chapter 15, and we will be done. Romans 15. Let's pray Father in heaven, we come as dependent people, as people who are too weak to defend ourselves and our own hearts and the circumstances we're in, the relationships we fear and the, the workplace and the parenting and the, uh, all the stuff that we have before us that captures our hearts and minds. So Father, today, would you give peace? Would you give what surpasses understanding? Would you give us a military defense that stands guard over our hearts? Father, we come as dependent people. We come as needy people, not strong enough to handle the issues of life that we face. But we know through your word that uh, we are precious to you. So we pray this and may this ring in our hearts as we leave and we close our time here together. This is from Romans chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Father, that's our prayer. Give us the peace we do not deserve that Jesus has earned on the cross. That having been justified by faith in what Jesus has done, we have peace with God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.